We are here. Can you hear Matt? 100%. Poor Matt. We're like, Matt, hi, we're leaving. We can't talk. Also, move this plant. Also, shut up. We're in the other room. Listen, he's lucky to get to be a part of all this. This is crazy. Like, all I can hear is Griffin being like, I can talk. I learned how to talk. I am talking. He's really fucking cute. He's so cute. I Griff's know. just Griff like is so... so into his new noises. And he's like really an actor at heart already. He's like projecting, projecting and projectiling. Dear readers, I'm leaving. Quinn and I are about to separate for a little over a month. I'm going to Chicago and I'm really excited. To become a star. To become a star in my family, to yeah. make it real, it's honestly for some guest starring work. <laughs> when you have grandkids or nieces and nephews, you understand that you're no longer the star and that's fine. Like, mm-hmm. that's a role I'm willing to, like, I, oh, it's right. okay. you were the youngest until those little kids came along. Yes. <laughs> yes. I was the youngest, but here's... But never here's, the cutest. Never the cutest. <laughs> Hottest, yes. <laughs> Which, by the way, a friend of mine... This is... Oh, I've gone on so many tangents. I'm going to finish this one and then go back. A friend of mine was looking at my Hinge and Bumble, and he recently had me post what I call a thirst trap. And it was really scary because it was like, oh, this feels really icky. And, um, dear readers, I am happy to report I have gotten no more likes than normal. <laughs> oh, that's great. It that feels good. Yes, it feels good, but you're also like, why did I do that? Why did I do that? Is it not <laughs> a did you picture do of me? Well, we're, we're interested. Wait, to be clear, what that. did you do? Like, what is the photo? The photo is. Do I have Don't my... show it to me. Act it out. <laughs> it's a selfie, which is already like triggering enough. Ooh. Yeah. But it's me with sunglasses. It's poolside, and and there's like a good portion of cleavage in it. Got it. It's a boob pic. It's to show Carrie has boobs. And, you know, I will admit I was drunk with my friend. He's one of my best friends. We were drunk and we switched phones and just looked at pictures. And I think we all have shameless selfies or stuff on our phone in a way that's like you would never share with public. And so it was interesting. He and I like really had a really lovely trust exercise where we were swiping through each other's and it was like, oh, oh, oh. Scary. <laughs> fun fun lesson in vulnerability. But yeah, he was like, put this up. He's like, just do it. Let's see if you get more likes. It'll make you feel good. And then I've gotten no more likes. So the goal was to get more likes, and I've gotten no more likes. Matt has taken pictures um in our earlier dating days, like when we went to Thailand. He's taken pictures of me in the shower. I want to be clear, not me doing any weird sexual things or posing at him. Right. I'm not even looking at the camera, but he would like sneak in almost as a prank and take a picture of me. Or it's like, you know, it's like, oh, you're beautiful. Like he's a photographer. I make him sound so creepy. (laughs) (laughs) He's a stalker is what he is. <laughs> He's a photographer. But we happen who, to be married. You ha- you know, you weren't necessarily consenting to the photo. <laughs> but he's an amateur photographer. Well, here's he just what I was going to really say. Arty. So he has, like, pictures of me very randomly in his, like, Flickr collection of photos on his computer. Mm-hmm. And there are some naked ones. Including, like, me being naked, yeah. pregnant. Things like whatever. Yeah. I don't care. Um, they're definitely not like for public consumption, but they're also not like, well, they're also not masturbatory materials. They're not, I don't know how to say this any other way, except that they're not sexual in nature, but they are naked. Anyway, he he used to have his computer set to this setting where when it would go idle, it would go to no slideshow of any of his photos. No. And we've definitely been in situations where... That's happened in mixed company. <laughs> I love that My favorite so much. time it happened was actually a time where it was just he and I. 
and it went to medical pictures he had taken of something that happened to his testicle. And his testicle, he was running up a flight of stairs and his testicle banged into his leg and he didn't think anything of it, but it hurt. And what had happened is a tube had gotten loose. And over the next year, he would have liquid leaking into his testicle and it would grow over the course of that year to become the size of like a grapefruit. (gasps) So he had to go in eventually. Just one testicle. And he did have to go in and get a pretty serious surgery to repair the tube and to drain the testicle. Now, what was hysterical is that the night before he got the surgery, he's like, I got to take some pictures of my giant nut. Because it's very funny this happened in one day. I will not believe that this ever happened and how big this nut got. Oh, my God. So he took some nut glamour shots. Right. And then at one point, we were home hanging out, and the computer went idle and went to Slideshow and started going through (laughs) these nut shots. And I was like, I'm really glad it's just us. Wait. (laughs) This... Oh, what has your naked pictures popped up with? Strange... I'll tell you who was there. Tell me. Brianna's ex was there, who's like potentially the funniest person in the world that you could accidentally I bet produce was... a naked picture in oh, front of. I already know his reaction. He's very waspy and he's very buttoned up and he's very. Um... He blushes really easily. He's so great. It was very. <laughs> Very traumatic for him, I think. More I, so I bet than he was for like, me. oh, 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 oh. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. oh, oh. And I bet his, not just his head turned, I bet his whole body rotated away from the computer. Yeah, I think he mm-hmm. had an aneurysm. <laughs> <laughs> the ball pictures are really funny, though. Yeah. We all have pictures on our camera. That's why, listen, just be careful of swiping. Just swipers be swiping. Never give a phone to my mom. She be swiping. By the way, you're listening. By the way, you're no longer listening to. <laughs> Truly. Darkly. Creepily. I'm Quinlan Posner. And I'm Carrie Ipema. And we can't wait to tell you two stories. One will be scary, maybe. By the we way. We can't wait. wait to tell you two <laughs> <laughs> Key change. We can't wait to tell you two stories. Griffin, come on in on the bass drum. <laughs> there was actually a story I wanted to tell. I'm going home to Chicago. Oh, if you have nephews, this is what I was going to say. You said I was, I'm the youngest in my family, and typically I think youngest girl has like a reputation about like getting whatever they want. Oh, uh huh. And. I'm going to be very clear. My parents spoiled all of us kids. Like, we were, my parents... Equal opportunity. Equal opportunity, but also, like, I'm sure I got away with more. If my sister heard this, she'd be like, fuck you, Carrie. You could do so much more. I think I got away with more in terms of, like, my parents, unfortunately, had to learn on my sister, the oldest, and then my brother, and then me. But I just want to put this into perspective. Another family who's, like, dear, dear friends of our family, you know, second parents, their kids are, like, siblings to me. They nicknamed my brother Jimmy Baby Jesus. Oh, got it. So it's like, I think that's worth noting that it's not me that came up with that nickname. And it's not some, like, other people observe and they're like, yeah, Jimmy can do no wrong. And he's the one who has three kids now. He got married. You know, like, he's doing everything to make my parents happy. He was... He was such a, he was a golfer. So like my dad loved it and my mom loves golf and he also did theater growing up and my mom loves theater. So it was like very much, he like appealed to both sides. My brother also was like super personable. He's the nice. only boy. He's the only boy. Um, but he also has always been a salesman. His room was always the cleanest growing up. Like he made his bed every day, but he also was the middle child and that he knows how to stir the pot. He's so Jimmy baby Jesus. I'm not saying Jesus stirred the pot, but I'm not not saying Jesus stirred the pot. I think we all feel like Jesus a little bit stirred the pot, you guys. Could you believe at, like, The Last Supper? What if I just did the story of The Last Supper for Truly Darkly Creepily? But could you believe what power at The Last Supper Jesus sat there and was like, (laughs) hey, guess what? One of you's going to fucking deny me three times. Hey, and the other one, you're going to fucking rat me out. And Judas is like, it ain't me. And Jesus is like, but it is. But 
It is. And guess what? You're going to kiss me first, you asshole. I saw a gift that was like Judas saying something like, come on, Jesus, we're going to be late for the Last Supper. And Jesus is like, what? And he's like, oh, uh, the supper, just the supper. <laughs> just right. Just, just the, supper. Regular, the supper. regular supper. See, it's even. But if you look at the history, it's Jesus literally going, Peter, you, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter's like, I would never do that, Jesus. Like never, never, never in a million years. And Jesus is like, but I know you. I'm clairvoyant. I'm clairvoyant. I'm God's kid. <laughs> so chill, dude. What I, but again, last, what other power trip? I feel like that's why he stirred the pot. Jesus for sure stirred the pot. Why did he need to tell them? What they were. Like, why did he have to, like, show off Just and, like, call play. people out? Let it play out. It feels it like very out. real housewives. I wish Lisa Rinna was there. All right, ready? So, 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 so. Um, first of all, thank you to all our Patreon subscribers. <gasps> we have new Patreon subscribers. No, we don't. Are you sure? Mm, I think we thanked the new ones last time and since last time. Ooh, it's been a week, guys. Dark. Dark. Dark days are upon us. Dark. No new Patreon subscribers. Should we quit? Why do you think people wouldn't join Patreon? That's a different way to approach this. See, you're not going to like... Do you think they're just forgetting? That's what I assume. Here's the thing. I kind of make it easy. Like, I put the link in the bio of each episode, so all you need to do is, like, go on whatever you're listening to and be like, what episode is this? And it has a link that takes you directly to Patreon. Oh, that sounds really easy. It's so easy. Here's the other thing. We... We call the episodes that we're giving the Patreon subscribers minis, but the truth is I just edited the yeah, most recent that one. It's well it. over an hour. So here's the thing. We're giving an extra full episode is the truth. And this month I'm going to do something crazy. Can I tell you what I'm going to do? What are you going to do? So do you remember episode 25 is totally vanished from our playlist? And the reason why was that you did the story of Phil Hartman and I did a story um, about this woman whose husband killed her and they didn't find out until faith faked his own own death death. and then they started looking into his life and were like we're pretty sure years ago you also killed your wife that woman's grandson got in touch with me after i did the story and asked me to take down the episode and i did so we no longer have an episode 25 but what i'm gonna do is i'm gonna go back in and take out my story but keep right. our chit chat and your story right. and i'm gonna give it to the patreon subscribers this Ugh. month in addition to the extra episode you are so lucky i'm always trying to find extras for them but i also think we should do a patreon ask me anything where we do like a video where people ask us anything i would love to do an those AMA. are called AMAs, right? Amos. I learned that. I um, learned that. Um, 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 we can also do that on our Instagram. There's so many things we can do. Here's the point I'm trying to make. Let me make it snappy and fun. Totally. Join Patreon. Join Patreon. Why haven't you joined Patreon? I don't know why you won't join Patreon. It's the only thing that makes me like you. Join Patreon. That's all the commercial. And now we can move on to the story. Now you're like, okay, we get it. We get it. We get it. We joined. We just joined. We, just we all joined. just joined. We've given you all of our money. No, we wouldn't ask for that. We're not a mega church. Half. <laughs> <laughs> Half of your riches. <laughs> Half of your riches, I demand. You know what we should also do? We should also do cooking with Quinn and Carrie, where when we make something, we live stream we it. We burn it. it. <laughs> we burn it. Um, okay, I guess it's my turn. It is. I'm really excited. I had a list of all these stories, and I was reading this great New Yorker article, all that stuff, and I was like, you know what? I don't want to do those stories. I'm going to look up a whole new story. Mm. So I did with the story of Jose Salvador Alvarenga. Great. Did you, were you impressed with my pronunciation Super. of that? Or do I sound like Ilaria Baldwin? <laughs> I have no idea. It's do you know truth. what I mean? Yeah, I wouldn't know. Okay, I got this information from The Guardian, Wikipedia, and, the, and Slate. The article on The Guardian, it's so good. So, Jose Salvador Alvarenga, I'm going to call him Alvarenga from now on. He's 35 years old. He is a fisherman from El Salvador, um, but he is currently in Mexico. He's about to go fishing for a two-day fishing trip where he catches, he goes deep sea fishing and he goes and he sells the fish. So he's supposed to go with his best friend, his BFF. His BFF is like, you know what? I can't make it. I can't go. Can you wait for me? And Alvarenga is like, you know what? I really got to do this now. It's me in the boat and the sea is calling me. It's a Moana moment. So he 
is on the dock and he's like, ah, I just need like a crewmate. So he was like, you, I know you as um, Ezekiel. He's like, oh, I know you as Ezekiel. He doesn't even know this guy's last name. He's 22 years old. His nickname is Pinata. He's apparently like <laughs> the star defensive lineman on the soccer team. And so Alvarenco, So is it Pinata because he gets whacked all the time? Being probably, like... I don't know, but people know around town he's 22. He's never done deep sea fishing. He's like never really... He's not experienced in this field at all. But Alvarenga's like, want 50 bucks? And so Cordoba is like, okay. Pinata Cordoba, he's like, okay, fine. I'll go for $50. I'm not experienced, but it's chill. I'll go. It's what, two days? Great. So the two have never worked together. They hop on this boat. The boat is a 25 foot long boat. So they say, think two pickup trucks and then as wide as one. So mm-hmm. it's like not a huge boat. There's no raised glass structure. There's no glass. There's no running lights in the boat. It's just like pretty much a raft. <laughs> it's not a raft. It's a big fucking raft. <laughs> but anyway, so they start fishing and in two days they catch a bunch of fish and on the boat they have a, it's like not a styrofoam container, but it's a big cooler where they store all these fish in and they've caught tuna, mahi-mahi, sharks. Also on the boat, there's 70 gallons of gasoline. There's 16 gallons of water. 50 pounds of sardines for bait, 700 hooks, line, harpoon, three knives, three buckets to bail water, like if some water were to get in the boat to remove it out of the boat, a mobile phone that they have in a um, plastic Ziploc bag, pro tip, a GPS tracking device that is not waterproof, a two-way battery radio, a two-way radio battery, sorry, a two-way radio. The battery is at 50% some wrenches, and they have 200 pounds of ice. Look, I don't know where you're going, but I'd like to see an 100% charge on that battery. I would love, we love a battery. So two days into the trip, they see the storm brewing and it's not looking good. The waves are coming and crashing and Alvarenga is like a very experienced fisher. So he like orients the ship. So it's not like getting hit by the waves. It's like walking through it. And Cordoba is not an experienced fisherman, so he's getting really seasick. Apparently, he's, like, really scared. He's, like, holding onto the side. Also, water is going into the boat. So they start, like, using the buckets to, like, bail bail the water. And he's so much so where his, like, hand rests his shoulder at some point, and he keeps going. He's, like, alternating between, like, crying and vomiting. The weather gets so bad that the weather masters, where they left port have barred any fish boats from going out into the water. The waters are getting really dangerous. So there's water at their feet. They're really worried. So the water's crashing into the boat. So they're worried about the boat sinking. And also they're worried about the boat flipping. So they're about two hours from land. And they're riding on these waves. And all of a sudden, the motor starts coughing and sputtering. No. And it stops. Yeez. So he has his radio. He radios in. He's like, we're stuck. We need help. Mayday, mayday. Mayday, mayday. They I bet go, he says. What are your coordinates? He okay. says, the GPS, if you remember, it's not waterproof. It's all wet. I don't it's know. It's all wet. I don't have coordinates. Fuck. He's like, they I'm say, right under the sun, if that helps. I'm under this <laughs> crate. I'm in the eye of the fucking storm. You know where the storm is? I'm to I'm the there. left and in it. I'm in it. They tell him to lay an anchor. He was just going to be deep sea fishing, so he didn't bring an anchor because you don't need an anchor when you're over the deep sea because you can't really stop. So in the list of ingredients that I said to make a boat trip, there was no anchor there. He does not have an anchor. Right. So they're going to just fucking keep moving. So they're a moving target, which is not ideal. Ideal. They also don't know their coordinates. So none of this is ideal for the record. This isn't a good situation. So they're saying... Okay, we're coming. We're gonna. We're we're gonna, we're on our way. We're gonna try to find you, because he knew he was like two hours out, fifty miles from shore. And Avarenga says, "Come now. I'm really getting fucked out here." Oh, <laughs> Jesus! After that, his radio quits. He no longer has a connection. He no longer has a means to communicate with anyone. Him and Cordoba are out on the boat by themselves. This is day one. The storm lasts five days. What? They are getting beat the fuck up out there. 
They're only wearing sandals, so they don't have traction. They don't have a cover over them. The rest of the time, they're just bailing water out. Apparently, at one point, they would, they were like on top of a wave, and they said it was a three-story drop. (gasps) The two men would see the waves like convalescing or coming together and would have to like counter it. So if the wave came to the right side, I'm not going to say port or whatever, jib, jab, I'm not doing it. But if they're on the right side of the wave and the wave is coming, they would like hold on on the right side. They would stick on the right side so that the boat wouldn't flip. Right. So the two men would like be constantly navigating. And luckily if it was the daylight, they could see the waves coming. Otherwise they can just hear them. Totally. Which sounds terrifying. At this point, the boat is pretty fucking top heavy, right? So they realize this 1,100 pounds of fish that they have on the boat is not helping them stay afloat. They take all of the fish they caught and they start chucking it overboard. Eat some of that fish. Yeah, but they're like, we're going to topple over because we're way too top heavy. Okay. Now we definitely can't fucking fall in because sharks are getting all this bait. There's oh. sharks underneath them. And they're throwing all this food. They're throwing all this food over. They toss the gasoline overboard. They tap they toss the ice overboard. They toss, I believe, the water overboard. The water? You they guys, are just trying you to You gotta stay. keep your water, you guys. They I don't are just care. trying to stay afloat. At this point, it's like fucking survival. Right. They don't mention that they necessarily throw the water They're in the over, short-term survival but mode, like, not the long-term. They're like, we need to... Like, this is a top-heavy boat. We will flip. Okay. They don't have an anchor, so what he does is he has 50 buoys that he connects as a form of a sea anchor, so it, like, helps sort of create some drag on the boat, uh-huh. just something to slow it down to stabilize it. At one point, Alvaranga, in a fit of rage, he picks up a battering something that he used to kill fish, and he's so mad, he fucking bashes in the motor. Because it's broken, and he's fucking angry, he bashes it in, he has a frick, and he throws the radio and the GPS into the water. Temper tantrum. Temper tantrum. For warmth. Remember, they're completely exposed in the center of the ocean. They don't they only have the clothes on their back. For warmth, they take this cooler that they were storing their fish in and they turn it upside down and the two men huddle inside this cooler. And they hold each other and they hug and they try to have body warmth. The storm and the wind brings them out further into the sea. They are now way further away from where they need to be. They don't have a row. They don't have paddles. They have nothing. They don't have food. They have no fresh water. To eat what they would do, or what Alvarenga would do, is he would go into the water. His chest would be against the boat, and he'd put his hands in the water, and he would keep an eye out for sharks, but he would look for fish, and when a fish would swim between his legs, he would, like, snap them shut. And he would use his fingernails to get the gills. And that's what they would eat. They would lay out the fish. So Incredible. And they would lay out the fish. And then they would eat it or you would eat raw fish. And that's how they started surviving. He also... That's a really crazy way to catch a fish. It's really insane. That's remarkable. After a couple days, they were so thirsty, he started drinking his own urine. Yeah. The both boys did. Both men did, I should say. He said he was so hungry that he would eat his whole fingernails, swallowed it whole just to get something. At one point, he would grab jellyfish and just pop it in and eat it whole and was like, it burned a little up top, but I was so hungry. 14 days of no fresh water. <gasps> it starts to rain. Oh, and they can collect and they have, it? They start, so they clean out the buckets that they've been bailing water. And they set it up around the boat and they take their clothes off and they shower in the fresh rain and they're like drinking water. And then they realize they have to start conserving it. So they start conserving this water. They're out in the ocean and what they would do is they would see plastic waste that people or boats or anything would leave. And so they became good at finding it, scavenging it and like opening. At one point they saw some chewed up gum that they were so excited about that they split it and ate the chewed up gum. They found a plastic bag that had some fresh vegetables in it, and they said they treated carrots in there, like, reverentially. Like, is that the yeah. word I want to say? Like, like reverentially. Yeah, yeah. Like, 
So there was like was half a head of cabbage. There was some old carrots and there was some rotten milk. They ate it all. Mm-hmm. The two of them had each other at this point in the trip. And so let that be a lesson to everybody to litter. Because you just never know who's out there that needs your help. <laughs> oh my god! You guys, come on! I'm come kidding. on! She's kidding. But this did save them, I'm sure, in a lot of ways. When they were further out into the water, they would start to eat seabirds. So what Alvarenga did is he had a stick where he would like put it on top of him, and he would be super still, and a seabird would land on it, and immediately the the seabird would like be skeptical of where they landed. And then after like a couple minutes, the seabird would like calm down. And at that point, that's when he would grab the bird, break its leg or arm. So it couldn't fly away and collect birds that way and then eat them. Smart. So the two men used this time to obviously connect. They did not know each other beforehand. And here they are stuck on a boat together they come from different backgrounds. Alvarengo, I guess, was kind of like a party guy. He loved good times, you know, drinking, partying. Cordoba was a pretty devout Christian, so they had conversations about, you know, their beliefs and things like that. And they talked about their family and their mothers. And the two of them made a pact that if one survived and the other didn't, they would go and visit one another's mothers mm. and tell them things and answer any questions and That's so nice. be there for them. And at one point, Cordoba had said if he died, he asked Alvarenga not to eat his body, to which he agreed. And while they were catching these seabirds, they were able to follow the lunar cycles. Alvarenga's grandfather taught him how to follow the lunar cycle, so they had determined it was around Christmas. So they caught some seabirds and they decided to both have two because it was a holiday and by the way they left in november if i'm not clear they left in november it's now christmas the end of december they catch the two birds the two men eat it cordoba gets violently ill he starts throwing up they find out that in the stomach of the seabird that they had was a yellow snake. It was a poisonous snake that essentially poisoned him from eating the seabird. Oh, my God. He gets violently ill. From that point on, he gets so afraid to eat anything. He starts refusing food. Alvarenga is trying to feed him fish, trying to, like, coax him to eat, and he just won't do it. He refuses to eat. One morning he wakes up, and Cordoba says... I'm dying. I'm dying. I'm almost gone. Alvaranga is going, take a nap. It's okay. You're going to be okay. Just take a nap. Cordoba says he's really thirsty. So, so Alvaranga starts to feed him water, but he won't swallow the water. Mm. His body convulses and he's still. Alvaranga screams, don't leave me alone. You have to fight for your life. What am I going to do here alone? Cordoba dies, Ugh. 22 years old. Alvarenga keeps the corpse on the boat, and he starts talking to it. The next morning, he's like, how was your sleep? Have you had breakfast? He acts like the body is responding. He pretends he doesn't die. It's not until six days <gasps> of his body being on the boat that something switches for Alvarenga, and he's like, what am I doing? I'm going insane. I'm talking to a body. So he washes Cordoba's feet. He takes his clothes because that's valuable. Mm-hmm. And he slides his body into the ocean and says goodbye to his friend. He immediately faints. He, he immediately com- faints? He faints after putting his friend's body into the ocean. He faints. He comes to, he's alone. He's now dealing with all this by himself. The loneliness, the depression, the thoughts of suicide. The only thing that's preventing him from killing himself is his mother always told him that if you kill yourself, you won't go to heaven. So he refused to kill himself. He's by himself. He spends his morning waking up, walking the ship like he's going for a walk. He imagines, he says, sex. He imagines delicious meals. In fact, that was something that both men did before. 
was they use their imagination. It's like, where do you want to go? Get tacos? Great. I got tacos or at the corner of the boat. They just would use their imagination to survive. Mm-hmm. He would search for container ships on the horizon, and he got really good at spotting them. At one point, I guess they had some matches on the boat where there was a shirt and they lit something on fire to try to pass them down. But the container ships are essentially just autopiloting. Yeah. So there's super no far and no one's super looking far, around. No one's looking around. He said they look like Lego pieces on the horizon. He said he probably had saw 20 container ships the whole time he was out there. There were more storms, but because of how far out they were, they weren't um, as severe. Mm-hmm. So they were sort of easier to fare. They're more manageable. His grandfather, like I said, taught him the cycles of the moon. At this point, he has seen 15 lunar cycles. He has been out on this boat for 438 days. (gasps) Oh my God. On January 30th, 2014, he notices an island in the distance. It's about as big as a football field. He adjusts his eyes. He tries to see if this is what he thinks it is. He's seen a mirage before. He's seen hallucinations. He's like, what is this? He sees it's actually an island. He doesn't see any cars or homes or roads. He cuts the buoys off his boat, which is really fucking risky. It was the only thing that was keeping him calm and tethered. And the only thing that's keeping him from not flipping. Within an hour, he's within 10 yards of the shore. He dives into the water. He starts swimming, he says, like a turtle. The wave pushes him, and he lands on the beach. Face down in the sand. I bet it feels so good just to touch land. He said it was like the sand was like treasure. A year that he hasn't been, that he's been unmoored floating in the sea. Over a year. Over and he year. finally touches land. He's by himself. Unbelievable. He's naked. He's starving. Turns out he landed on Tile Islet, which is a part of the Ebon Atoll. It is one of the most remote spots on Earth. It is 4,000 miles southwest of Alaska, or 2,500 miles northeast of Australia. He is in the middle of the fucking Pacific Ocean. Wow. He walks through this town and he's not town I'm sorry he walks through this island and he notices across from a canal there's a house there <gasps> there are two people who live there Emmy Liebich um, Meadow and her husband Russell Leichtrick the names I'm sure I'm not pronouncing well so what they were doing is they work on husking um, and drying coconuts on the island and so they're used to being completely remote and they look across and they see this man there. He's yelling in Spanish. They don't speak Spanish. He's holding a knife. He's completely naked. He looks hungry. He's famished. The first thought they had was this person swam here. He must have fallen off a ship. He was 6,700 miles from where he left. Wow. Because they don't speak the language, he's drawing pictures for them trying to go like a boat you know here's where i am they don't understand they call a local island nearby because this is a bunch of islands that are near each other the fact that he landed on an island with people on it is like truly miraculous enough as it is let alone for surviving over a year they call they ask for a medicine a doctor or nurse something to come over they come over to get him he won't set foot on the boat. They have to convince him to get, get back that. on the boat. thousand percent. He's like, I just got to land. He said while he was talking to the couple that at one point he just kept talking and talking. And then he started laughing uh-huh. at his survival. Like he just was like probably truly manic in mm-hmm. a way that I can't even imagine. I get weird not talking after eight hours to somebody. This is 438 days. Um, so they care for him. He, they feed him. Um, they send the police and the nurse. They get him back on the boat. Um, the media gets wind of this. And this island has one phone line. So like Hawaii, LA, like all these places are trying to get an interview with this guy. 
his health starts to decline while he's getting help. What's happening is his body is so dehydrated that any fluid that he's getting, he's swelling up. He's retaining because mm-hmm. his body is like, oh, my God, we don't know when we're going to have this next to keep it, keep it, keep it. They finally and his blood pressure was super low. They finally get him stabilized enough to go back home to El Salvador after 11 days, he's diagnosed with anemia and that he had parasites in his liver from when he ate all this raw fish and that it possibly could have gone to his brain. But he's okay. He survives. He's flown back to El Salvador. This is where, of course, people are like, I doubt that this actually happened to him. But when they look into it, of course, the boat registration from when he left November, when he left in 2012, it matched this registration and the name matched and all that stuff. But of course, people were doubting because it's truly an incredible, insane story. He gets to El Salvador. He, like, can't deal with the media. He has crazy PTSD. He can't even get into a deep sleep because he's so obviously... I think he slept like that for over a year, no deep sleep. He has PTSD not just from, like, the ocean, but just water in general. He has a fear of. Because of all the media requests, he hires a lawyer to handle all of it because he just can't handle it. When he's better enough, he fulfills his promise to... Cordoba, where he goes and visits his mother, Ana Rosa, and he sits with her for two hours and answers all of her questions. He constantly needs to have people around him. He needs to sleep with the lights on. He is the first person to have survived in a small boat lost at sea for more than a year. If you're interested in any of this information or or hearing the story, um, there's a journalist, Jonathan Franklin, who published his book, 438 Days, An Extraordinary True Tale of Survival at Sea, where it's after a bunch of interviews. This is the book that came out. This is something that I read that I don't know if it's true, but I want to share it because I think it's kind of interesting. After this book was released, where after he gave this crazy interview, the family of Ezekiel Cordoba sued him for a million dollars, accusing him of cannibalizing their relative in order to survive. Oh, please. He's promised not to do that, and he didn't. Leave him alone. Even if he did, though? Even if he did, though, I agree. Even if he did? Aren't you glad that... That's like donating your organs after you're dead. It's like you kept someone alive. What what better... uh, could you ask for that in your son's death, he saved someone's life? At this same point in time, I wouldn't, in just sharing that information with you, I wouldn't be surprised if they blame him. Because he was like, come get on this boat with me. I wouldn't be surprised if that was. I get that. There's probably a lot of anger there. (sighs) Anyway, 438 days at sea in a boat with not a lid. With not like an, not a cover. There's no <laughs> they were not the in a box. They to were be not very in a box clear. to be super duper clear. But 14 months he was at sea. That is a wild survival story, Carrie. That's fucking nuts. Have you ever heard anything as that never. is never ins- for? Because what I, I don't even think I've seen a movie like that. He looked like Castaway, like his beard yeah. was long, all that stuff. I mean. Well, it makes Castaway look like a real fucking picnic, honestly, because to be on an island island. versus a boat is a very different fucking set of circumstances. Well, I can't like yet and truly having to get all of your like no cover. I mean, luckily he had like this box to turn over to offer some sort of protection Mm -hmm. from the sun and the cold. Mm -hmm. But other than that. There are some conspiracy theorists who don't think this was him. And because it's like so insane of a story that it's like, how is that fucking possible? He also, by the way, I don't think I mentioned this, but he ate turtles as well while he he was at sea. And apparently they would drain the blood and drink the turtle blood, which apparently gives you crazy amounts of energy. Did you know this? It's like a Red Bull. Yeah, it's like a fucking Red Bull. Turtle blood, red turtle bowl. blood, red bowl, and don't try that. At don't home. try that at home. Sixty-seven hundred miles on a boat. That's twenty-five feet long. No, I mean I can't wrap my mind around that. Horrifying. Thanks <sighs> for listening. I like a survival story. They are a nice change of pace in a way. Speaking of a change of pace, I'm gonna not do a change of pace, which is to say, do you have a survival story? No, it's not at all a survival story, even a little. But it's um, a story I've wanted to do for a while since I did a different story that 
sort of relates. Ah, fuck it. I'm just going to tell you. It's the story of Scott Falliter. The name sounds familiar. Because I pronounced it wrong when I first told you about this. I pronounced it Scott Falliter. I you prefer like, Falliter. Please tell me that's <laughs> incorrect. And I'm happy to report that it is. <laughs> so I got my information from Wikipedia, Phoenix News Times, ABC, Forensic Files Now. So here's kind of the prequel to this story. Scott Falliter grew up a quiet little kid. I don't know. I get a good feeling about him because he played the clarinet and loves practical jokes. So I'm just picturing oh, like a, kind of a wild tyke, you know, his house must have been kind of like a, a you know, center of good chaos. No, just like there, he has four younger siblings. It's just okay, a good. busy house. Every it's time we started, it's like they had a rough upbringing. I'm like, oh, they're going to be a killer. I mean, five kids. Like, who raises five kids? Some of you, My dear grandma. readers. That's a, just so many. So many. Um, well, his mom is a nurse, so, like, she can handle it, right? Nurses can handle everything and, and everything. And his dad's a personnel manager, which kind of feels like you would need to be those two things to run a house with five kids. I love that. Um, well, they didn't get along with each other. It's not as happy as you want. Like, the parents... Right apparently would have some altercations that would turn violent and it would really like bother Scott because he's in a position of being the oldest of these kids. So I think he's sort of having a feeling of wanting to protect them um, and had a greater understanding of what's happening because he's the oldest. He ends up maybe because of the turmoil. I'm not sure that would be speculation, but he does end up developing sleepwalking habits. When he becomes a teenager. No. Yeah. Perhaps due to the unrest at home. See what I did there? Dun, dun, dun. That's a pun. Um, oh, that's what it's called. For yeah. Mm-hmm. So when he's a sophomore in high school, he meets Yarmila Kleskin. She is beautiful, introverted, artistic, and he's never really dated anybody before. I mean, he's young. He's a sophomore, but he falls hard for her. She sounds lovely. Yeah, she's great. They go to school 50 miles apart from each other after high school. Like, oh. they go to college in different towns. That's so but they close. Still, yeah, it's not that. They still go on dates, like, every now and then. Right. They're still together, even though they're apart. So the other really big thing that happens in Scott's life is right around the time they decide to get married... He also converts to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He, like, meets some Mormons. They talk him into this. Have you heard about this book? Yarmila, not psyched about it. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. She's like, dude, I don't even actually know that I want to marry you now. And he's like, please. And she's like, fine. So they get married. Does he get married? Can you get married in the Church of Latter-day Saints if she's not? A Mormon bishop does their ceremony. Interesting. Okay. She makes it obvious it's, like, not her cup of tea. Yeah. And when he'll have, like, his Mormon friends over, she'll be like, oh, I think I hear my phone in the other room. And he'll be like, your phone's right here. And she'll be like, I think I left the oven on. He'll be like, I can see the oven from here. It's off. And she'll be like, okay, I need to feed the fish. And he'll be like, we don't have a fish. Like, that's what I'm picturing anyway. Yeah. Um, I didn't read that. I thought you read that. I thought that was actually, like, a direct quote. (laughs) I was surprised you didn't credit it with any article, but keep going. (laughs) So after a few years, she does come around and he takes her to Salt Lake City and he's like, isn't this fun? Look at all these Mormons. And she actually ends up taking classes about it and she does get a Mormon baptism. And then they get this ceremony called being sealed Mm. in a Mormon temple. I can't picture what that means, but when I first read it, I was just picturing them licking each other and then sticking together. Because I don't know the word sealed. Wait, don't you just picture envelope love? I bet it's like their Mormon marriage almost. It's like okay. they like seal. They're like together forever. That makes more sense the than what I'm picturing. I don't know. That is totally my guess, but why not? So they end up moving to Florida. They have a couple of kids. They move to Minnesota. And in Minnesota, Yarmila's not happy. She's a stay-at-home mom. She gave up work. She feels controlled and... 
lonely. I think Scott's working all the time and he's being kind of an asshole. He says that at that time he was behaving really arrogant, really self-centered. So they kind of need a fresh start and they end up moving to Arizona and being like, redo, redo, redo. Scott gets (laughs) a new job as an engineer at a Motorola semiconductor plant. And now it's 1997 and they are in Arizona. They're happier now. He's planning a trip for them that summer to go to Europe. His plan is to quit his job and become a high school teacher. She's a teacher. She's teaching preschool. But she's not going to live long enough for them to go on this trip to Europe. And Scott's not going to get to become a teacher because of the role he ends up playing in her death. Whoa. I know. Really good cliffhanger I wrote, right? I feel like you just told us what happened, but I also like that I have so many questions. I have so many answers. So in the months leading up to the night in question, Scott is really fucking stressed out. He's managing this new Motorola product that's not doing well and he knows that it's not doing well and he doesn't know what to do because he's in this situation where if he tells his bosses this isn't going well, that will actually mean that probably a bunch of people on his team that he cares about that he's managing yes, will get laid off. So He probably won't, but it's like the stress of that is weighing super heavy on him. It's a moral issue for him. He doesn't want, he does not know what to do all the time. And he's obsessed with it and he's thinking about it and he doesn't see a way that this is going to have a happy ending. He stops sleeping. He gets into a pattern where what he's doing is he's so stressed out that he'll only sleep a few hours a night. And then he'll do that several nights in a row and then he'll crash hard and do a night where he sleeps like a full night's sleep and sleeps like a rock. Yes. Pro tip. I don't think that's good for your body or yourself. Okay. And you can't make up for lost sleep is another thing. Like common misconception. So the night in question, here we go. It's January 16th and it's just before 11 at night. And the Phoenix police station gets a call from this guy, Greg Coons. He's their next door neighbor, Scott and your Millas. And he says, I saw my neighbor, Scott, holding a woman underwater in his swimming pool. And the cops come over and Coons, the neighbor, is there. And he's like, come on, let's go look. They go next door and Yarmila's in the pool and there's blood in the pool, like (gasps) emanating from her body. Oh, no. She's dead. One of the police officers at this point sees through the window a guy walking in pajamas in the house and they go in like guns drawn And they're like, lie down on the floor. And he's confused. It's Scott. And he's like, what's wrong? And they ask him, sir, how many people are in the house? And Scott says, "Uh, four, me and my wife and my two kids. And they look at him and they notice that he's got some blood on his arm, blood on his face, a little behind his ear. He has a fresh Band-Aid on his hand. He's also super out of breath. Like he's like just worked out. They go upstairs Obviously, your mill is not there. We know where she is, but they do find the two kids asleep upstairs. They bring Scott to the police station and they interview Greg Coons again. And Greg says, well, what happened was I heard screaming coming from the yard next door and I went into my yard and I saw someone kind of moving through the fence. So I stood up on a planter so I could peek over the fence and I see Yarmila and she's lying by the pool and she rolled a little at this point. So she was alive. I saw a light go on in the house. I saw Scott walking around in there, going to different areas. And then he came outside and just stood over Yarmila for about two or three minutes, not doing anything, just staring. Then he went back in the house. Then he came back out wearing gloves and he pushed her into the pool. He held her under the water. That's when I called the police. Greg, the neighbor, his girlfriend, Stephanie, is like, yep, I heard a woman scream earlier. I heard her saying, please don't or please no. And Greg's like, yeah, it was so creepy. I felt like Scott looked at me. Like, while I was spying, I felt like he looked over and saw me and didn't. And I got, like, spooked and I ducked. But he didn't do anything when he saw me. He didn't, you know... They find on the ground there was a flashlight shining towards the pool pump and there was Yarmila's blood in that area. 
they go and they search uh, Scott's garage and they find a bloody shirt in his car in a plastic bag with more bloody clothes and a bloody knife. They also find a garbage bag with bloody boots and bloody gloves inside it. Now, Yarmila had been stabbed 44 times. Jesus. And some of them are, 12 uh, of them are actually like defensive wounds. Five went all the way to the hilt. They were four inch deep wounds. Wow. And the fatal wounds were to her lungs and heart. So they, they call her cause of death, multiple stab wounds with drowning. They interview the kids. Oh. And the kids are like, it was a totally regular night. Nothing was out of the ordinary. There were no fights that happened. Our mom watched TV. She read. She went to bed. Our dad was uh, up when we went to sleep. He was trying to come up with a game for his church youth group to play. They also say that the blood-soaked jeans in the car were their dad's work pants. This is just sort of interesting to know. They were his pants he would wear when he would do work around the house, like odd job work. Mm -hmm. And he did always keep them in that car, in that bin, the bin they were found in. The car's also where the knife originated. So the knife was also a knife that he kept in the car for work stuff. It wasn't like a kitchen knife or something. Right. Um, oh, I'm going to send you an email and we're going to read the interview Okay. that Scott had right after this happened. Do you want to play Scott or the detective? Um, um, I will play detective. Okay. What brought this on? You tell me what happened. I don't know. From what the neighbors say, you guys have never fought before. I loved her. What set this thing off? Got it going. Obviously, you think I did it. I don't know what makes you think that. Well, because I have a neighbor staring at you watching you do it. That's why. Jeez. So it's not whether you did it or not. That's not my concern. I want to know why you did it. I'm sorry. I don't remember doing it. What do you recall? I remember I was in bed. I heard the dogs go crazy. And I heard all the voices came down and you guys were all over me. God. Do you remember no more than that? No, she stayed in bed. She stayed on the couch downstairs watching ER and I went to bed. What did you guys argue over, Scott? Nothing. Nothing. How did she die? Well, the neighbor says you stabbed her and drug her over to the pool and held her under the water in the pool and watched you do it. From what people are telling me about you guys, you spend a lot of time in the church, a real quiet family, and real out of character. I want to know what went on. What would lead to something like this to set you off like that? What did she do to set you off like that? Nothing. What did you do to set yourself off like that? Something set you off, Scott? I'm sorry. I just don't know. Help me with this, Scott. This is hard for me to understand. You can say that again. I I just don't know. I loved her. Been married all my adult life. She certainly didn't deserve to die. She was a good wife, great mother. So are my kids. What went wrong? I'm sorry. Nothing. Nothing went wrong? I love my wife. I love my kids. And then there's a few minutes later, and the detective asks him how he became stained by blood. What blood? The blood all over your neck. Here? I didn't know there was blood on me. And then the detective points out that he also has the fresh Band-Aid on his hand, and Scott says he doesn't remember getting cut, and he doesn't remember putting a bandage on his hand. I know you're lying. Too many people heard you yelling and fighting with her, and too many people saw you, and saw you push her under the water in the pool. They know you and saw you doing it. That's a fact. And I want to know why. Something had to set this thing off. I'm sorry, I just don't know. Okay, if that's the way you want it. But you're going to jail for first-degree murder. And at this point, Scott asked the detective to tell his kids, tell them I love them, no matter what they hear, tell them I love them. So when Scott goes to trial... The prosecution starts off on a really bumpy foot, which is that they are like, look at this woman like Yarmila. And they're like, is this your soulmate? Is this your soulmate? And he's like, yes. And they're like, then why don't you know her birthday? And he's like, I do. And they're like, well, you said that it was such and such a date. But this paperwork we found lists a different date. And obviously the paperwork was just wrong. Like Scott knew his wife's birthday. So it was like a really dumb way to start. And they should have definitely double checked that. <laughs> really embarrassing for the prosecution. They are going to struggle constantly with this question of motive. They end up talking about how one of his friends called her his dumpy wife. And she had gained a lot of weight. And that's really weak. 
Like, he killed her because she gained weight. For the record, that's not motive. (laughs) They also say that it was a Mormon sin to not continue to procreate and that she didn't want more kids. They don't really have any proof that Scott felt that way. They have an expert talk about Scott's actions after the murder, how he took his clothes and the murder weapon and put them in garbage bags in the trunk of the car. And it was a very complex action, right? Right. So he obviously knew what he was doing because he was doing all these different things. And as you might have already guessed, what Scott's defense is. He always did that. He was sleepwalking. Right. That's his defense. One thing that works in the prosecution's favor Yarmila is not wearing her wedding ring when they find the body. So they're not sure if there was some sort of marital dispute going on. Yeah. One thing that works in favor of the defense is actually the neighbor's testimony. In that the he looked that, at him. And like, yes. He seemed to be looking at him with a flat expression. He described it as be, he was behaving like a robot. One of Yarmila's best friends, Liz Biggs, comes forward to say... Yarmila never talked about them having any issues in their marriage. And she was the kind of person that would have talked about that. She was outspoken that way. She was not a shrinking violet. She would have been like complaining about Scott. And she was not. She also says that Yarmila told her a few years back that Scott had a problem with sleepwalking. Lois, Scott's mom, will talk about how she remembers Scott Uh, when she used to live with him, that he would get up and sleepwalk around the house, that he would get up at midnight, he'd walk around the living room naked, saying he had to go to school, and his dad would try to get him to go back to bed, and he'd resist, and she'd be like, oh yeah, you couldn't talk to him when he was sleepwalking, because it would freak him out. And his sister comes forward to say, oh, well, I remember when Scott was 20, and I was 15, and there was this really scary night where he walked into the kitchen only half-dressed, And he started fumbling with the back door like he was trying to leave. I reached around him and locked the deadbolt so he wouldn't be able to leave because I knew he was sleepwalking. And he knocked me across the fucking room. And it was terrifying. And his face looked crazy and demonic when he did it. And it scared the shit out of her. And at the time that this happened, Scott had been studying for something, some sort of finals. And he was getting ready to get married to Yarmila. He was a really stressful time in his life. Oh, God. They do independent testing with this machine called a polysonograph that basically tells them Scott's brain fits the profile of a sleepwalker. We know about the stress that he was going through at work. We know about the sleep deprivation. These are all classic triggers, right, for sleepwalkers. We also hear the defense say what they think maybe happened is that Scott was trying to fix a faulty swimming pool pump. So their swimming pool pump had been broken. He had intended to fix it. And maybe he went out to fix it in his sleep. And Yarmila went out and got in his way. So, like, when you get in the way of somebody trying to complete a task when they're in this state, it right. can be very dangerous. Do you remember the other sleepwalking case yeah. I did? Yeah, it's similar. That he was going to his in-laws, they thought, to fix something, and they got in the way and he killed them. Ugh. Which that guy was, as you'll recall, found innocent because of that sleepwalking yeah. defense. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. What? It the- feels like the way you're telling the story, you're inclined to believe him that he was sleepwalking. Yeah, I, I guess I am, sort of. I'm, I go back and forth. Well, let me finish telling you. So basically, the prosecution's task is to just kind of show that there was planning as far as this went. Right. They can't figure out the motive, but they at least need to show that there was some sort of plan in motion. From Scott's point of view, he says that he got home from work around 7 or 7.30, ate dinner, that Yarmila told him at that time the swimming pool pump wasn't working properly and that he needed to fix it. He fiddled on his computer doing the church stuff, figuring out this game. His kids go to bed at nine. He checks the pool pump at this point, but doesn't finish the job because it's too dark. Then he sees Yarmila falling asleep on the couch watching ER. He gives her a kiss. He goes up to bed. The next thing he remembers is coming to with the police crashing and then the dogs barking. This is so scary because 
He Ugh. says he initially was like, this sleepwalking defense sounds like bullshit, pure and simple. Like, he wasn't buying his own defense. Right. And he, some of his quotes are, Sometimes when I think about this, I wonder what kind of Jacqueline Hyde am I? There's no way I would or could hurt Yarm. I don't know that something like that could be in anybody I've ever known, much less me. You know what bothers me the most? Of all the people I know, she deserved it less than anyone. I kind of wish she had grabbed the knife and done me instead, or that she had run away or something. But because it was me, she didn't. I hope they'll at least let us spend some time together after I die. Maybe hug her one more time. Some other uh, side notes I want to bring to light are that there have been historically sleepwalking events with very dire consequences. Earlier this decade, an Iowa college student walked barefoot across a frozen pond and onto a highway and a truck hit him. This was while he was sleepwalking. In 1878, there was this British case that's so sad where a guy killed his baby in his sleep, just like threw the baby against a wall. Also found innocent. Oh, my God. There's this woman who wrote up this case we're talking about in a 2004 issue of the American Journal of Psychiatry, uh, Cartwright. And she said that she absolutely believes him. She's convinced. She says that sleepwalking people are really, really good at navigating their own space if they're familiar with it, that they can go up and down stairs, do complicated things like drive cars. They can navigate the world. It's just that their recognition, their face recognition is turned off. So a person isn't a person to them. Oh, my God. That's so scary. It's just like, how did he get the knife is the crazy thing. Well, that's just it. It's so complicated. But if he was going to his work truck to work on the pool, he might have put on those jeans. He might have gotten out all his tools, including that knife, and brought it out poolside. She says that sleepwalkers can even be a little bit OCD and meticulous, which is where the fixing things comes into play. It's sort of like if you're in a and place of... And why he would of, put everything back in his car. Right. And if you're in a place of um, turmoil in your life, that it almost makes sense that the physical thing you do in your sleep it's is go fix a thing. Yeah. It's like, let me at least go get this done. Oh. Uh, the result in this case, though, is that the jurors... They believed the prosecution sleep experts more than the defense sleep experts, and they were getting different information from them. So in June 1999, he's convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. And he's in prison. Did he ever try to appeal it? I'm sure, but I I would guess. I, I can tell you that he is in prison for this murder. Wow. Really? interesting case and when I the more I read about it the more I felt unsure of whether I think he was sleepwalking or not and the the prosecution sleep experts have basically said that it was just too complex too complicated all the things he did huh. following the murder huh. um, to like that maybe the stabbing over and over again maybe but the stabbing changing clothes out of bloody clothes putting them in bags putting them in a car da, 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 coming back drowning her it's too involved that they are they do not believe he could have done it in his sleep and the defense experts had people like Cartwright coming forward to say he absolutely could have done it in his sleep and I see stuff like <sighs> this all the time Oh, his poor kids. His poor kids. Poor your Miller. Cartwright also points out that off the cuff when they say to him, how many people are in the house? His first or second. Four. Me, my wife, and my kids. That just rang really true to her as far as him presenting the facts as he thought they were. That's so fucking terrifying. It's so scary. It makes me, if I honestly... Don't date a sleepwalker. Put it in your hinge. Don't do it. Bumble hinge sleepwalkers need not apply. Right, though? It's, like, so fucking scary. Totally scary. I mean, like, I have nightmares where I accidentally hurt someone and it's traumatizing enough. That's a nightmare. Oh, I hate that. I hate it so much. Anyway, 
I had to tell you that story because I had to know what you think. What do you think? Based on the way you presented it, I'm inclined to believe he's innocent due to sleepwalking. I'm surprised. Like, I'm if always you're surprised. Gonna kill your wife, if say there was a motive and we don't know what it was, they weren't able to prove motive. Say there was one and we don't know what it was. Really, that's your plan. That's how you're gonna do it. Fake sleepwalking, stab her forty four times next to the pool and then drown her, and then fake sleepwalking. Well, it, isn't first degree premeditated? Yes. That's what doesn't make sense to me. It feels more crime of passion than premeditated murder, if any, if anything. Right. Because it wasn't clean. It wasn't, it was messy and it was obvious. We may never know. We will never know, but we're, I mean. I think it's such a rare case that this happens, but I do think it happens. And I kind of think it did happen in this case. I'm inclined to believe innocent, but at the same time, like, I actually wouldn't be surprised if he didn't appeal and was like, if this was me, I need to, like, that's why I'm curious if he appealed or if he took it on and was like, I'm punishing my, I I deserve this. The best article I found on this case was an article in Phoenix News Times by Paul Rubin. So, dear readers, go read this. Tell me what you think. I just need to talk about it. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. I think, listen, I, I, I do believe he sleepwalks. The fact that the sister, the evidence of his family, and that he has been violent in a dream state Yeah, before, which I think is probably think tricky, is, too, because it's trial and your family's coming forward to tell stories that there are no witnesses yeah, to. That's she's tricky telling as a well. story where he hit her and injured her in a way that I don't think you would want to put in the court of public opinion either. Sure you would, if it's going to help your brother not go to prison. True. As far as people that testified, I was the most moved by hearing that Yarmila's good friend came forward to say they weren't fighting and she told me he was a sleepwalker. Totally. Yeah, I agree. She has no reason to be on his side. There's no one in his life that is saying no. That's what surprises me, is that everyone, including the neighbor, was like, he looked like a robot. He made eye contact with me and didn't do anything. How hard on the kids. Ugh. That's, I guess, all for now. I mean, we have nothing else, right? I have nothing else. I I have nothing to give. Um, I think that got us worked up. I think we should go on a, a walk around the block and cool off. Cool off, cool off. <sighs> Join Patreon. Uh-huh.